Welcome to the DTB podcast for February 2017, volume 55, number two. My name's David Fazakli, I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. The starting point for our editorial this month came from some advice issued by the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency on the safety of spironolactone in heart failure. So last February, the MHRA highlighted safety concerns with spironolactone. And what, what stimulated that piece of advice? So this was on the basis of a coroner's Section 28 report where a patient had died of hyperkalemia following the use of spironolactone and an ACE inhibitor in a patient. And in fact, there have been three deaths from hyperkalemia. And I think that was what triggered the MHRA's initial warning in February 2016. And what did that first warning say? And that basically said, do not use spironolactone with ACE inhibitors or angiotensin II receptor antagonists um, routinely. And the problem with that advice? Well, of course, the problem with that was that a number of guidelines suggest actually that it's a really good thing to use them routinely together, in particular in patients with ejection, uh, reduced ejection fraction heart failure, because actually the use of spironolactone in these patients actually saves lives. So for people who've been treated with an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin II receptor antagonist or ARB, whatever you want to call them, and are not getting perhaps the level of, of symptomatic relief that you'd want, you then add in spironolactone. So the MHRA advice then suggested that that as a routine step is not recommended. So let's just go back a bit. What, what is the issue with spironolactone? So spironolactone really uh, was just a straightforward potassium-sparing diuretic until 1999 when the RALS study, which was a study on uh, patients with reduced ejection fraction heart failure, who uh, it was found uh, starting them on spironolactone actually reduced mortality rates by about 30%. And that was a trigger for a real look at the use of this drug in heart failure. Since the RAIL study has been, been published, what evidence has accumulated on its use? So, it's, I mean, there's lots of evidence that its use has increased. If you look at the national audit that we do in the UK on heart failure, Around 40% now of patients with uh, reduced ejection fraction heart failure now are taking spironolactone together with their other treatments. So this has been seen a huge increase in its use since 1999. And in the original RAIL study, the level of hyperkalemia was quite low. That's right. It was, it was only about 2%, I think. And if you look back at that study, the type of patient that they were um, looking at was not typical of today's patients and uh, one of the aspects that we look at in our editorial is that there are other studies which perhaps have a population that was more reflective of today's population um, which shows a much different level in um, hyperkalemia and perhaps the one that's most useful is the top cat study which was a um, similar study done but on a very different population with over 30% of those patients having diabetes and in this uh, top cat study the incidence of hyperkalemia amongst patients taking spironolactone was more in the region of about 18%. So the MHRA in December clarified its earlier statement what did it say in December? So in December it clarified and said obviously you know it, its use in heart failure is something that uh, should be considered, but they 
I think uh, obviously were concerned about the hyperkalemia aspect and therefore reiterated the very clear advice regarding monitoring of potassium levels when you start patients on spironolactone. So where does that leave prescribers? What should they do if you're starting spironolactone? I think where this leaves prescribers, um, two issues. First of all, there is a little, little element of confusion with spironolactone because if you look at the product characteristics, it is still licensed to be used in big doses for edema, you know, 100, 200 milligrams. And I think my own personal feeling is that that should be a rarity. We shouldn't be using it in that sort of high doses just on its own for edema, except in particular circumstances. When it comes to heart failure, its place is in much smaller doses, starting at 25 milligrams or even less and then treating it with extreme care. So this means making sure patients don't have hyperkalemia before you start, making sure patients understand that they need to not be taking potassium supplements, because some of them may have been doing that if they'd been taking furosemide or non-potassium sparing diuretics previously, making sure they understand sick day rules if they're gonna start spironolactone, and then making sure that you monitor them really carefully, and that's, in line with the SPC, which means you monitor them at one week. And it's got to be one week. Don't let it be two weeks, because one of the aspects that came out of the coroner's inquest was even though the GP had arranged to check the patient's uh, use and ease, it hadn't been done, and the patient was admitted to hospital in a very serious state about 10 days or so after starting their spironolactone. And in that particular case, spironolactone was had been started or the patient was already on it but lisinopril was added in that's right I and mean, this was a this was a case where the, perhaps you wouldn't have even clocked it this patient was on a large number of drugs they were already taking spironolactone and the gp uh, just added in 2.5 milligrams of lisinopril and that was enough to tip this patient into a catastrophic hyperkalemia uh, and death which suggests that any addition of anything that's likely to have an impact on potassium levels, be it adding spironolactone or adding another drug, check. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things we might be doing in our practice is to look at our patients on spironolactone and just review and make sure we don't have any sleepers or who are just collecting perhaps large doses of it or who are not having regular proper monitoring. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, our first main article reviews decluzumab for relapsing multiple sclerosis. Um, Decluzumab, is it a new drug? It's interesting. Decluzumab actually um, is an old drug, and uh, this is a sort of remarketing um, for use in the management of relapsing forms of MS. So before, it did have a license for renal transplantation, use in renal transplantation. That's right. And then the, the manufacturers have altered um, the preparation methods for this and were hoping that the European Medicines Agency might allow them to be able to relicense this as a sort of separate or new drug. But the EMA weren't having anything of it and said, no, this is, this is basically the same drug in a different wrapper. Let's start with the evidence review. What, what do we know about this? The, the two studies that we go into in some depth were in what population? Yes. Yeah, so we have two studies and Interestingly enough, all the patients that were put into the study actually had relapsing remitting form of MS, which is the most common form, which affects probably about 85% of people with a diagnosis of MS. And the trials both looked at patients who had to have evidence of active disease in the 12 months before randomization and had to have an expanded disability status score, which is a way of measuring 
the amount of disability these patients have of five or less. So that was given sort of an idea of, of their disability level. And the comparators? So in the two studies, one was called SELECT, and in that study it was versus placebo. There were about 620-odd patients over 52 weeks. And the primary outcome that they were looking at was reduction in, in relapses, or if you like, exacerbations of the patient's MS over that time. And the second study, the outcome, or the not the outcome, the comparator was? Yeah, so in the DECIDE study, this was comparing daclizumab with interferon, and this was a, a study of about 900 patients over between two or three years. So the primary outcome was the annualised relapse rate. So what did they show in terms of efficacy? So in the SELECT study, so this, is, remember, is versus placebo, there was an absolute reduction in relapses of about 0.25 per year in patients taking uh, the monoclonal antibody. Um, so that was about a, a reduction of almost half, um, but, but an absolute reduction of 0.25 in a year. And in the uh, DECIDE study versus interferon, there was uh, a reduction. So you had about, um, I think, about 0.39 uh, relapses in the interferon group in the two to three years versus a 0.22 relapses in the daclizumab uh, group. Now, as part of the study and also the EMA assessment report, they looked at perhaps a more relevant 24-week confirmed disability progression, and that showed benefit? Yeah, that well, that did show a statistical benefit in the daclizumab group over interferon, but it, um, it's possibly quite speculative in the results. Um, the, this study was multi-centred and relied on subgroup analysis for this. And so I think that's not something that we can be absolutely certain about. The other issue, of course, for the uh, licensing authorities as well is that interferon is perhaps not considered the most uh, effective treatment in these patients. And really a study which compared this drug against Lemtizumab would have been a better option to give us a good idea of really how or where this drug fits in our armamentarium. What about harms? So adverse effects, about one in six uh, patients started on this drug, uh, discontinued it in the two studies. And there are really, I suppose, three main areas of concern uh, with this. First of all, infection rate. Obviously, all monoclonal antibodies have this risk of infection, and uh, there was a 58% uh, rate of infection in the studies, with about a, a 4% of these were serious. Skin reactions are another big issue. About a third of patients suffer skin reactions, including one case of Stevens Johnson syndrome, which obviously is a, is a really nasty uh, skin reaction. And the other big issue is liver issues um, with about uh, one in six, one in seven patients developing transaminase rises that would require one to either stop the drug or reduce it. Just going back to the EMA decision on, on licensing, because as we said, the trials were done in relapsing remitting. The license actually says relapsing forms of MS. So they've obviously broadened it to include other forms. Is it clear how that came about? It's not clear, is it? I mean, we spent some time looking at this and going through the uh, European Medicines Agency report, and they don't give us anything really rather than some paragraphs suggesting that when they looked at the studies, there was a group of patients um, that they felt demonstrated that actually this 
uh, this benefit was across the board and perhaps you could have uh, categorised patients differently. And as a result of this, by consensus, they suggested that it was possible to expand the licensing uh, from not just relapsing, remitting forms of MS, but to that slightly broader sort of term of relapsing forms. So it's just, just sort of changed, just slightly changed the, um, the licensing to broaden it. And last couple of issues. Uh, cost? Cost is always tricky, isn't it, these? Because sometimes there are some terms that the NHS uses to reduce costs. But it's a, it's around about £19,000 a year. It's a monthly injection. If you compare that with something like um, Alemtizumab, um, which is about £35,000 for the first year, dropping to 21000 in the second. But as I say, it's difficult with the confidential uh, agreements that sometimes go on. It can be difficult to know actually what the real cost is. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, and our final article looks at qualitative research in healthcare. Essentially, what do we cover? So I think this is just a very broad brush uh, review of qualitative research as opposed to quantitative research. And I think all of us involved in therapeutics are very used to the idea of quantitative research. You know, it's the bedrock, if you like, of evidence-based medicine. But increasingly, we need evidence that looks at things slightly differently. I think perhaps just looking at the situation with, let's say, the NHS at the moment and the issues around why do patients particularly go to A&E rather than their GP, those sorts of studies often are not well done in a quantitative way, but actually in a qualitative way, reviewing patients, talking to them, interviewing them properly can give you hypotheses or ideas which you might then be able to generate and focus on and, and perhaps develop a quantitative report as a result. So we look at the whole broad breadth of qualitative research. We look at um, the types you can have and how it compares with quantitative uh, research and um, the sort of the benefits and risks and, and the differences between the two. Thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments or observations, please email dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.